Choose life, says Mark Renton, or Rent Boy, in the book. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgages repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suit on hire in a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who you are on a Sunday morning. Choose life. But why would you want to do a thing like that? and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast. Today we're doing something a little bit different. Now I don't know if you've heard but Irvin Welsh, he's kind of a big deal, he wrote Train Spotting, is releasing a new title in the series Dead Men's Trousers. Now I've got a secret to tell you, I've never read Train Spotting. Now I cornered the publicist of Irvin Welsh, Aidan. He read Train Spotting when he was 15 and he's now Irvin Welsh's publicist. I thought he was the best person to ask why I should read this book and give me a little bit of context. Here's Aidan. Aidan. Hello. <laughs> I've uh, cornered you uh, during your very busy work day to ask you a terribly millennial question. Um, what am train spotting? <laughs> train spotting? Uh, Obviously, I'm kind of a bit younger than you. Not that much. A little. Not a that little. much. Um, but it's, train spotting is a phenomenon that, that has kind of like been a, a kind of peripheral part of my knowledge. It's something that. So the book came out in 2000, no, 1993. Yes. Uh, so I would have been three. <laughs> I would have been <laughs> 11 or 12, okay. so a little, okay. a little ahead. And then the film must have come out when you were about 15 or Yeah, 16, in 96, so, yeah, 14, so 15, yeah. Yeah, and so, so you're maybe just one generation above me, but I sometimes feel like I kind of miss out on what Trainspotting was really about and I'd like to read it, but I wonder if you can twist, twist my arm a bit more. Well, <laughs> the first thing, I, you should read it, firstly, just because it's an absolutely amazingly good book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really it captures a time and a place, uh, and it just like a, a group of characters that are just that you will immediately fall in love with on the page. Uh, and it's not just the characters that people might know from having seen the film, like Renton, uh, Begbie, Sick Boy, and Spud. There's a whole other cast of characters there, various other people and various peripheral characters. Uh, who I think didn't didn't make it into the film or were kind of truncated in in the in the way that the film was made, but it's just the form of it is just totally different. It's a much kind of more looser, uh, almost like a series of short stories, like kind of portraits of people in a place. It, I mean, it does yeah, have a like plot. Like kind of tableau windows into. The yeah, world. and it's just it's a it's a it's a fantastic fantastic book, and it's just really. I remember my first impression of reading it. So I read it. I think it might actually have been the first uh, like adult book that I read. Uh, I borrowed what it off. What way to jump in? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I borrowed it off my uh, my brother's girlfriend at the time, who I, I was too young to see the film in the cinema. But I, uh, you know, the the phenomenon was in full full kick in 1996. Mm. So I kind of like surreptitiously got the book off her, probably against probably what would have been my parents' better wishes, <laughs> uh, and was just immediately drawn into like a book that felt sort of. It's, it's, it felt dangerous to me and like very and was discussing things that were kind of over my head like sort of Thatcherite politics and social deprivation in Scotland drug use obviously um, you're telling me you weren't into MDMA not at the age <laughs> of uh, 16 no or ever <laughs> for that, my uh, but 
yeah, it was just, I think, growing up in the 90s, you couldn't be aware, you couldn't not be aware of Trainspotting as a phenomenon. I mean, even, even obviously the film ratcheted that up, mm. but just, it, it was such a cultural cornerstone to everyone in in the yeah. sort of mid-90s. And I guess there's that, that really famous, you know, choose life, choose a job, choose a briefcase. Yes. Um, I suppose it was kind of like tapping into that generation that was really properly trying to question capitalism. And, yeah. And um, it links to rave culture as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Funny, the choose life, one, reading the book, the, the, the context within yeah. which the, the choose life uh, soliloquy mm. happens in the, in the book it's so different than the way it's presented in the film. It's, really? It's, yeah, in it's, the film, it's right at the beginning, isn't it? It is it's like exactly. It's not. I think it's 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 much later in the book, and it's it's Mark Renton's kind of discussing his sort of family dynamic and the reasons why he has gone down uh, mm. kind of you know suspect life choices that he has made within the context of mm. his own the sort of prodigal son. Yeah, exactly. Within his own sort of family dynamic and within the kind of wider culture that he lives in. So. Even for that alone, uh, it's just brilliant to kind of see how that is situated within the book rather than in the film. Okay, so it's still in the public imagination. I still hear so much about it. Why? Why is it still so relevant for so many people? Well, I think part of the reason is that it was an unmissable cultural phenomena in the 90s, and like any unmissable cultural phenomenon, they really make their mark. Um, it was also coming out of... Uh, when it was published in 1993, I think it was coming at the kind of tail end of a, of a sort of a, a 1980s literary tradition in Britain, which was sort of dominated by the likes of like Ian McEwan and Martin Amis, and a, a sort of a very different type of writer. And it's, it felt like a very kind of fresh... Um, kind of kick in the face yeah, to the literary so. canon. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, how does it feel to be um, publicising his third book as, well, a, as a proper adult? Yeah, as a proper adult, I, I, it feels wonderful because I remember writing the press release for this book and putting my name at the bottom of it, thinking like, yeah. "Oh, that had a very sort of like a little kind of level of cognitive dissonance." I'm like, "Whoa!" This I immediately remembered sitting in my bedroom reading the kind of wonderful, you know, silver foiled edition with the skulls on it, uh, yeah. uh, which was just a brilliant thing to even hold and look at in the at the time. Um, yeah, it feels great, and the new the new novel, Dead Man's Trousers, is uh, utterly brilliant. Follows follows the. It's the same characters, right? It's the same characters. Yeah. It's, so you've got Renton, Begbie, Sick Boy, and Spud, who are now sort of cultural institutions of their own, and they, everyone has their own. Everyone has their own favorite. Everyone has their own kind of love uh, affair with these different characters. Um, but we all know uh, from the strapline of this book that one of them will die. And the nation will be mourning. Shakespearean foreshadowing. <laughs> Absolutely, this is you know there will be trauma counselling sessions uh, set up after the publication of this new book. Uh, but they're all older, maybe not wiser. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's an utterly brilliant uh, continuation of this fantastic. Last question: Who's your favourite character? Sick boy. Sick Spud. boy. <laughs> I don't know. It's so it's hard because there. Are, it's they're it's an amazing achievement that they're all lovably unlikable. Yeah, I think <laughs> Renton is very much the sort of like the the kind of conscious the conscience of uh, of the novel uh, of of all the novels that have featured these characters. Uh, Sick Boy is just the ultimate sort of like rakish raconteur, um, and you know does some despicable things, but they're just often hilarious. I mean, Spud was probably the heart and soul of it. He's he's the you know. The, the sort of lovable, never had a chance in his life style character, the real 
someone who everyone is always rooting for, uh, and Begbie is just a, you know a, like deliciously drawn psychopath, uh, and it's just so so incredibly well conceived uh, and, and explored. It's just just watching that level of mayhem unfold in in one person on the page, you know, is a delight and a one that kind of does make you sort of shudder to read. Am I going to lose one of them? <laughs> we are, we are. It's tragic, but, okay. you know. Well, yeah, I'm going to get on reading Trainspotting before Dead Man's Trousers comes out. You can hold me to that. Please do, please do. I will report back. And then you've, you've got catching up to do, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep tabs on it. Okay. Um, so now we're going to listen to an extract from Trainspotting. The sweat was lashing off his sick boy. He was trembling. I was just sitting there, focusing on the telly, trying not to notice the cunt. He was bringing me down. I tried to keep my attention on the Jean-Claude Van Damme video. As happens with such movies, they started off with an obligatory dramatic opening. Then the next phase of the picture involved building up the tension through introducing the dastardly villain and sticking the weak plot together. Any minute now, though, all Jean-Claude's ready to get down to some serious swedging. Rents, I've got to see Mother Superior, sick boy gasped, shaking his head. Oh, I says, I wanted the Raj to just fuck off out of my visage to go on his ain and just leave us with Jean-Claude. On the other hand, I'd be getting sick tea before long and if that cunt went and scored, he'd had out on us. They call him sick boy... No because his eye was sick with junk withdrawal, but because he's just one sick cunt. Let's fucking go, he snapped desperately. Hold on a second. I wanted to see Jean-Claude smash up this arrogant fucker. If we went now, I wouldn't get to watch it. I'd be too fucked by the time we got back, and in any case it would probably be a few days later. That meant I'd get hit for fucking back charges for the show up on the video I hadn't even got a decat. I've got to fucking move, man, he shouts, standing up. He moves out to the windy and rests against it, breathing heavily, looking like a hunted animal. There's nothing in his eyes but need. I switch the box off at the handset. Fucking waste, that's all it is, a fucking waste. I snarled at the cunt, the fucking irritating bastard. He flings back his head and raises his eyes to the ceiling. I'll give you the money to get back you. Is that all you're so fucking moosey-faced about? Fifty measly fucking pain-suited writs. This cunt has a way of making you feel a real petty, trivial bastard. That's no the fucking point, I says. But without conviction. Aye, the point is I'm really fucking suffering here and my so-called mate's dragging his feet deliberately, loving every fucking minute of it. His eyes seem the size of fitballs and look hostile, yet pleading at the same time. Poignant testimonies to my supposed betrayal. If I ever live long enough to have a bairn, I hope it never looks at us like sick boy does. The cunt is irresistible on this form. I wasn't, I protested. Fling your fucking jacket on well. At the foot of the walk, there were no taxis. They only congregated here when you didn't need them. Supposed to be August, but I'm fucking freezing my balls off here. I'm no sick yet, but it's in the fucking post, that's for sure. 
Supposed to be a rank. Supposed to be a fucking taxi rank. Never fucking get one in the summer. Up cruising fat, rich festival cunts. Too fucking lazy to walk a hundred fucking yards from one poxy church hall to another for their fucking show. Taxi drivers. Money-grabbing bastards. Sick boy muttered deliriously and breathlessly to his cell, eyes bulging and sinews in his neck straining as his head craned up Leith Walk. At last one came. There were a group of young guys in shell suits and bomber jackets who had been standing there longer than us. I doubt that sick boy even saw them. He charged straight out into the middle of the walk, screaming, Taxi! Hey, what's the fucking score? One guy in a black, purple and aqua shell suit with a flat top asks. Kitty fuck, we were here first, sick boy says, opening the taxi door. There's another yint coming. He gestured up the walk at an advancing black cab. Lucky for you, smart cunts. Fuck off, you plucky-faced wee hangout. Get a fucking ride. Sick boy snarled as we piled into the taxi. Toe cross, mate, I says to the driver as gobs splattered against the side windy. Square go then, smart cunt. Come on, you crapping bastards, the shell suit shouted. The taxi driver wasn't amused. He looked a right cunt. Most of them do. The stamp pie and self-employed are truly the lowest form of vermin on God's earth. The taxi did a U-turn and sped up the walk. See what you've done now, you big-mouthed cunt. Next time one of us are walking home on our Jack Jones, we get hassle for the wee radgies. I wasn't chuffed at sick boy. You're no fear of they wee fucking saps, are ye? This cunt's really getting my fucking goat. Aye, aye, I fucking am. If I'm on my tod and I get set on by a fucking squad of shell suits. You think I'm Jean-Claude Van fucking Dam? Fucking dos cunt, so you are, Simon. I called him Simon rather than Sai or sick boy to emphasise the seriousness of what I was saying. I want to see Mother Superior and I didn't give a fuck about any cunt or anything else. Got that? He pokes his lips with his forefinger, his eyes bulging out of us. Simon wants to see Mother Superior. Watch my fucking lips. He then turns and stares into the back of the taxi driver, willing the cunt to go faster while nervously beating out a rhythm on his thighs. One of the cunts was a McLean. Dandy and Chancy's wee bra, I says. Where's that fuck, he says. But he couldn't keep the anxiety out his voice. I ken the McLean's. Chancy's all right. No, if you take the piss out of his bra, I says. He was taking no mere notice, though. I stopped harassing him, knowing that I was just wasting my energy. His silence suffering through withdrawal now seemed so intense that there was no way that I could add even incrementally to his misery. Mother Superior was Johnny Swan, also Kent as the White Swan, a dealer who was based in Toll Cross and covered the Sight Hill and Wester Hills schemes. I preferred to score for Swanee or his sidekick Ramey rather than Seeker in the Muirhouse Leith mob, if I could. Better gear, usually. Johnny Swan had once been a really good mate of mine's, back in the old days. We played football together for Porty Thistle. Now he was a dealer. I remember him saying to us once, Nay friends in this game, just associates. I thought he was being harsh, flippant and show-offy, 
until I got so far in. Now I ken precisely what the cunt meant. Johnny was a junkie as well as a dealer. You had to go a wee bit further up the ladder before you found a dealer we didn't use. We called Johnny Mother Superior because of the lengthy time he'd had his habit. I soon started to feel fucking shan and awe. Bad cramps were beginning to hit us as we mounted the stairs to Johnny's gaff. I was dripping like a saturated sponge, every step bringing another gush from my pores. Sick boy was probably even worse, but the cunt was beginning not to exist for us. I was only aware of him slouching to a halt on the banister in front of us because he was blocking my route to Johnny's in the skag. He was struggling for breath, huddling grimly onto the railing, looking as if he was going to spew into the stairwell. All right, Si, I says irritably, pissed off at the cunt for huddling us up. He waved us away, shaking his head and screwing his eyes up. I says nae mair. When you feel like he did, you didn't want to talk or be talked at. You didn't want any fucking fuss at all. I didn't either. Sometimes I think that people become junkies just because they subconsciously crave a wee bit of silence. Johnny was bombed out of his box when we finally made it up the stairs. A shooting gallery was set up. I've got one sick boy and a rent boy that's sick and all, he laughed as high as a fucking kite. Johnny often snorted some cokeways fix or mixed up a speedball concoction he smacking cocaine. He reckoned that it kept him high, stopped him for sitting around staring at was all day. High cunts are a big fucking drag when you're feeling like this because they're too busy enjoying their high to notice or give a fuck about your suffering. Whereas the pissied in the pub wants every cunt to get as out of it as he is, the real junkie, as opposed to the casual user who wants a partner in crime, doesn't give a fuck about anybody else. Ramey and Alison were there. Ali was cooking. It was looking promising. That was the beginning of Trainspotting by Irvin Welsh. I'm pretty convinced. I'm actually really excited to start reading this. Um, let us know on Twitter at Vintage Books if you're going to be reading along too, ready for the release of Dead Men's Trousers. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. <laughs>